Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Today, we're going to look in the story of the book of Ruth. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there with me to the book of Ruth. We're going to Ruth chapter 1 in just a moment. Just want to welcome those that are streaming live as well. Thank you for being with us this morning. I... Um, I have a little bit different message card. I've given you plenty of space to write notes, but I've been away. I was telling them in the earlier gathering, preaching like a madman this week at a, at a student camp for the state of Georgia and Macon, and so um, it just required a little bit different prep work this week. And so, um, but if you want to follow along with the message points, they will be on the screens. But also, if you have a smartphone, you can click on YouVersion, and on your YouVersion app, uh, if you'll click on events in the top left, uh, Dwelling Place Church should come up. That is if your location services is on. It'll come up and you'll see the entire message there in front of you as well. But I am a, I'm a pastor who loves sports, right? It's no, no, no secret that I love sports. I love collegiate athletics, particularly fanatic of college basketball, fanatic of, uh, fanatic, fanatic, fanatic of college football. I love college football, love college basketball. And uh, I grew up going to Tennessee football games. Uh, that was kind of my, uh, I had season tickets growing up. And so growing up in Chattanooga, the volunteers became very near and dear to my heart. My dad, at a very young age, took me to Cameron Indoor Stadium in Durham. And so I became a Duke fan at a very young age and loved Duke basketball. But being a pastor, you got to understand, there have been many times where I've had to DVR or go back and watch the replay of games that I wish I could watch live. If you know what I'm saying. Now, student pastor, 10 plus years, ACC Wednesday, ACC Sunday night. First church I pastored, we had Sunday night services. I missed a lot of Duke games. I had Wednesday nights, I did high school and college, and so I'd miss Wednesday night games. And then I've done a lot of youth camps, a lot of different conferences and things, and so those are on Saturdays, so I'd miss Tennessee football. But, but I, no doubt, every time, I'd never wanted to know what it was that happened in the game. You know, I'd try to make all efforts to turn off my phone, social media, everything, until I could get home to watch the game. But there would always be that guy who would text me, somehow the information would get to me. And when I found out that my team had won or lost, it really changed whether or not I wanted to watch the replay, if you know what I mean. So, for instance, if I find out my team wins and I go home and watch a Duke game, like, I still enjoy watching it. In fact, it makes it kind of more fun because when, they, when things happen, like, that are not going good, I'm like, it doesn't matter, we still win in the end. But if my team loses and I find out my team loses, then I do not want to watch the replay at all. In fact, it adds injury to insult because... When good things happen, I'm like, well, who cares about that? We lose anyways, right? Like, it doesn't matter how good we get in this, you know, third quarter or the second half or whatever the case would be, you know, we're going to end up losing the game anyways. It makes even their good plays depressing. I never forget, I was teaching in the school of discipleship on Monday, Monday night at a church called Free Chapel, and I was there and, uh, in 2010 when Butler played uh, Duke for the national championship game, and so I missed some of it, didn't want him to be contacted, and and it got to me that they missed the last final shot. And at the end of the buzzer there, the second half, Butler threw up a three from half court. And it kind of went around the rim. And so I got to watch that. And I was so excited, right? Because I knew that my team won. And I knew even though we were down there towards the end of the game, we were about to win the game. Well, the book of Ruth is a hopeful glimpse of the end. Now, the book of Ruth comes to us in the narrative of Scripture in a very depressingly dark, dark chapter in Israel's history. The book essentially declares to Israel, you win. You win, Israel. You win. You're victorious. And here's how. And incidentally, this is interesting when you study scripture, the book of Ruth is the first time the word hope is used in all of the Bible. The word hope finds its insertion in the book of Ruth. Now, I've taught you this before, but just by way of review, in English, the word hope often implies something we want to happen that we are not sure will happen. Like I Hope the Atlanta Falcons win the Super Bowl this year and not break our heart and, and you know, blow a 28-0 lead, right? Like, I hope that. I hope that Tennessee's better this year than they were last year. But biblical hope, by contrast, is not something you are unsure about. Biblical hope is something you are very sure about that just hasn't happened yet. Biblical hope is rooted in confidence and identification and facts. That, that you look forward to this with expectation, and that looking forward to, that desire, that intent will shape and reshape the entire outlook 
of your life. Well, that's what biblical hope is. And that today, friends, is what the book of Ruth is about. Ruth is about that kind of hope. Now, the setting I mentioned to you already is an incredibly dark time in the nation of Israel. At the end of the book of Joshua, if you read Joshua, Joshua ends the book by telling them that that Israel will not remain faithful to her Lord. Israel will not remain faithful. Israel will fall away from the Lord again and again. And sure enough, they don't. They don't stay faithful to God. So the book of Judges, which is the book that comes right after Joshua, is a crazy cycle. Judges is really, really crazy when you really start looking at just the cycle of history and how history is so cyclical because this, this, this nation, Israel, that disobeys God, that has idolatry and disobedience, God then sends enslavement upon them, captivity. They cry out in repentance and God delivers them. But because they do not have knowledge of God, they go right back into enslavement and disobedience and idolatry and therefore God allows captivity. They get captive, they get enslaved, they cry out for repentance. God delivers them, but because they don't know God, they go back into idolatry, they go back into sinfulness, they go back into entertainment, they go back into disobedience. God sends enslavement, they cry out in repentance and God delivers them. And every cycle in the book of Judges, it seems to get worse. It's like a downward spiral for the nation of Israel. Well, the book of Judges ends in total moral chaos. Judges ends with Israel as bad, if not worse, than the very Canaanites they had driven out. So God told them to go into this land flowing of milk and honey, and he would drive out the enemy, the Canaanites, and now we're not even here for a decade, and the nation of Israel is just as wicked, if not more wicked, than the very people they drove out of their country. Now, the story of Ruth, here's what's interesting. It takes place in the last of those dark cycles, right after the story of Samson. We're going to talk about Samson in a few weeks. Samson's the last judge in history, or Israel. The last judge that you see in this time part period before the monarchy or the kingship of Israel begins. Okay, this is as bad as it could be in Israel. Now here comes Ruth. You ready? Go with me. Ruth chapter 1 verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now catch that. Did you see that? The promised land, the land that God promised to bless them in and from which he would make them a blessing to the world is under such severe famine because of the sin of the people of God that they're having to leave the promised land to go to foreign land to get food. This is a bad situation. The promised land that's flowing with milk and honey is now so deserted, is such a wasteland, is so full of famine that the people of God are having to leave to go to another country. I mean, this is a land supposed to be flowing with milk and honey. Now there's not even enough grain to feed their families. Verse 2, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Milan and Chilion. Milan and Chilion in Hebrew means sickly and spent. Sickly and spent. Now, again, these were nicknames, but still, that's a tough way to grow up. What's your name? My name's Sickly. What's your name? My name Spent. Look at the next verse. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with Sickly and Spent. She was left with her two sons, Sickly and Spent. Verse 4, these Sickly and Spent took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah. She was kind of a mouthy talk show host. And the name of the other was Ruth. Okay? Ruth. And catch that, too. They're marrying Foreign pagan women, very pagan women that worshipped other gods. And this was directly forbidden by God. You could not intermarry with another tribe. The Bible says they lived there about 10 years and sickly, sickly and spent died. No surprise there, right? They've perished. They're done. Look at this next verse. Then Naomi, then she, that's the mother, she rose, arose with their daughters-in-laws to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard back in Israel that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. They're going to go back to the land of Israel. God has visited them, verse 8. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead, that's your your husbands, and with me. Verse 14. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. Orpah says, boom, peace out, I'm gone. But Ruth clung to Naomi. And Naomi said, see, Ruth, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Let, let, let you return with her. Go back to Moab. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God shall be my God. That, by the way, is a great Old Testament uh, summary of a conversion story. 
That's a conversion story. That's a clear conversion example. Verse 18. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Look at verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, don't call me Naomi, which means sweet in Hebrew, but call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Lord Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Verse 21, look at this. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Time out. Why did she leave the land of Israel? There's no famine. There's no food in the land. And now she reinterprets it and says, when I left to go to Moab, I left full, but now I'm coming back empty-handed. What's she saying? That God and his faithfulness and my own family members is more important than eating physical food. It's a greater blessing. She said, I left full. Now I've come back empty-handed. My husband's gone. My two sons have died. One of my daughter-in-laws has gone back to Moab. I got this one girl with me, this one Moabite woman, Ruth, with me. Ruth, number, uh, Ruth chapter 2, if you're with, your, with me in your Bible, now there are widows. They got no food. They got no jobs. Their pets' heads are falling off. So Ruth does what poor people do in those moments. Some of y'all caught that, caught that movie reference. Some of you didn't. So it's one of the greatest of all time. So, so what poor people did in those days, what happened? Verse 3, she set out. And she went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. Now you say, Craig, what is a reaper? God had commanded in Leviticus chapter 23 that reapers would only pass through the field once. They would go through the field once and they would pick up the grain. But they were not allowed to go back through the field a second time. And they couldn't pick up any of the second uh, uh, pass through, so to speak. And they were not to go back and clean it up. And this was God's simple way of caring for the poor. Isn't it amazing that God has always had a plan to care for poor people and it's never through the government. It's always by the generosity of his people. So he had put us law in Leviticus that the reapers could go through once, but they couldn't go through twice. So all the poor people would come in behind and pick up all of the leftovers. So Ruth, being a poor person, she goes out to pick up what the reapers are left behind because she's in debt. And the Bible says it just so happened she came to the part of the field belonging to Boaz who was of the clan of Elimelech, who was, of course, Naomi's deceased husband. Now, there's two things you see here you need to understand because we got to really get the context of the text here. Number one, saying that Boaz is a relative of theirs is a really good thing for them because it means that there may be someone around to help them, that Naomi and Ruth could be helped by this guy, this Boaz, this relative of her deceased husband, Elimelech. Plus, number two, <coughs> excuse me, it's a signal for a Jewish audience that a romance, a romance is afoot. And as a pastor, I call it something sparking within the congregation. Okay, the, There's a, a romance story aloof, so to speak. I realize that in today's culture, when you say so-and-so is your cousin, that doesn't immediately set up a romance, okay? Unless you're from somewhere, I don't know, in Alabama. I'm just kidding. Um, but, but, but in the Bible, well, I'm just totally kidding. Please hear me. Uh, in the Bible, when you say that so-and-so is your cousin, that's an indicative statement that there is romance that is afoot. Secondly, that phrase, it just so happened, is going to be repeated a couple times in this book. I think it's eight times with intended irony. You say, what do you mean? She just so happened to stumble into this particular field of Boaz. It's the kind of coincidence that's just too random to just happen. And that's the point of the text. You know, guys, it's kind of like when your wife, it's her time to pick out the movie. So you're sitting there on a Friday night and you're watching one of these chick flicks. And there's a major plot turn. <coughs> you know what I'm talking about. A major plot turn where all of a sudden that hinges on some totally random guy. Some lucky coincidence. And in your brain, you don't say it out loud. But in your brain, you're like, yeah, right. Come on. That would never, this stuff never really happens in real life, right? Every Lifetime movie. This stuff never, ever happens. Hallmark Christmas movies. It's the same plot. Like this never, ever happens. Like who, this is absurd. Who writes this garbage? And you turn to your wife. And you are about to point to said absurdity when you notice she's <laughs> sniffing her nose and wiping her tears. And in that moment, one of those few shining moments of your marriage relationship, you think, you know what, maybe now is not the best time to bring this up. So instead, you just kind of shake it off. You kind of nod your head and you say, Wow, baby, isn't God good? Isn't God good? Isn't Jehovah Jireh? The Lord will see to it. He will always provide. 
Well, well that's what's happening here. It's a, a random total coincidence, but it's all being woven together by a sovereign God. Listen to me. In the book of Ruth, there's not one dramatic miracle, but there are sovereignly woven circumstances because the Bible wants to teach us God works supernaturally in both ways. He not only works in miracles, but he works in supernaturally weaving together coincidences. You, if, you, if, you, if you pay attention to your life, you'll look back at a thousand different coincidences that God somehow orchestrated, right? And, and, and you understand that your path to God's promise is always going to be miraculous. If it wasn't miraculous, it would look like you. You did it. So we see in the book of Ruth that there's this interweaving, so to speak, of sovereign circumstances. There's no dramatic miracles. Maybe you've heard it said, we've said before, coincidence is often just God's way of remaining anonymous. It's just a way of God remaining anonymous in our life. Look at verse 4. And behold, Boaz. Now this is real dramatic language, okay? This is supposed to be like cue the Rocky song, okay? Think Rocky by Boaz. Behold, Boaz. He came from Bethlehem. Now look, church. Boaz means strength. He's a man's man. This dude comes riding in on a horse with his cape flapping in the wind. He throws his hair out of his face. He's not wearing a sweater vest. He's not drinking a wine spritzer. He's not listening to Celine Dion. He's a man's man, okay? He's a man's man. He doesn't listen to Carrie Underwood on his spare time, okay? He's not a Bieber fanatic. He's not a believer. He is a, a, a believer. He's an individual who's a man's man. He's coming out. And he's coming out to his field with all this strength. And he's rich. He's rich. He owns all these fields. And everybody loves him. Look at the text. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they all respond in unison, no, Boaz, the Lord bless you. Now, how many of you, when your boss walk in on a Monday morning and says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all, and you all pop up out of your little cubicles and you say, no, may the grace of the Lord be with you, right? That's never going to happen. Something else pops up out of your cubicle, right? And it's like, man, it's Monday morning again, right? I mean, this, what I'm trying to say is this guy's liked. He's loved. Like Boaz is loved by the people. Look at verse, verse 5. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, that was the nerd with the clipboard who actually graduated from college, he said, whose young woman is this? Whose young woman is this? If you underline stuff in your Bible, you want to take your pen right now and you want to underline that statement because that is the statement of this entire book. Who is this woman? Who is this woman? Who is she? Because that's the fundamental question of the book of Ruth. Whose woman is she? Whose woman is she fundamentally? Is she mainly a Moabite to be despised? Is she a stranger? Is she damaged goods? Which is how culture would have seen her because she's been divorced. Now look at me. To a Jewish, Jewish audience church, Ruth had three strikes against her. Let me give you the three strikes. Number one, she's a Moabite. The Jews regarded Moabites as a cursed people. Why? Because the Moabites were the offspring of an incestuous relationship with Lot and his two daughters after Sodom and Gomorrah. So he laid with his two daughters. He had Moabite women. Not only that, if you go to the book of Numbers 25, a big group of Moabite women seduce the Israelite men to marry them and they get them to worship false idols. And because of that, God kills 24,000 Israelites because of the Moabite women. These are bad luck women. Okay? Now you see, the, you see the context of scripture. You've got this Moabite who's being despised by Israelites. They know these stories very well. Boaz knows this story very well. Second one. Second strike against her, she's widowed. Which, what does that mean? That meant that she would have been regarded as used goods. She's already used up. Number three, she's poor. Poor was a sign of God's judgment. God had judged her. And plus, by the way, can I just tell you, young man, tell you, young ladies, there's no way Ruth looks good here. She's rummaging through the weeds... Looking for food. Her face is all oily and grimy and her one dress is all dirty and torn. Like, this is not how you want to meet a girl, right? Or meet a guy. Like, most girls, if they know they're going to be meeting a significant guy, I've been around student pastor long enough, they disappear for like four hours upstairs in their bathroom and they're sandblasting and they're spray painting and they're doing things utterly unknown to the, to the male gender. And then they come down four hours later. Like, when you meet Mr. Perfect, you don't want to be slimy and grimy and dumpster diving for food. But that's what Ruth is doing. 
You say, Craig, what's the point? The point is she's not a picture of attractiveness and she's not a picture of beauty. But Boaz represents a different kind of man. Boaz represents a man not going after outward beauty. Boaz represents a different kind of man in Israel. He's given us a picture of God's love for those that are vulnerable, for those that are hurting, for those that are chastised, and for those that are cast away. So Boaz uses his pickup line, read it with me. He says to her, don't you, do, don't you go glean in another field or even leave this one. That's like an Old Testament pickup line. Don't you, do, hey, I'm going to put a little extra corn cob out in the field for you. I'm going to put a little extra grain out there. Don't you dare go to another field. Hey, baby, I'll leave some extra grain for you. It seems strange to me, but it worked better than any pickup line I've ever used. Look at verse 10. She fell on her face, bowing to the ground. Maybe, guys, you want to try it, okay? I don't know. Tell her you leave a couple of things of corn out. I don't know, some grain on the field. I don't know what you can. But it worked. She bows down on the ground with her face. I mean, in my day, we had some great Christian pickup lines. Like, girl, I heard Jesus called you, and he told me he wanted me to call you too. Is that okay? You know, we use that one. Or maybe this one. Hey, girl, you are breaking the Old Testament law because you are working it on the Sabbath, right? So, so we use these type of lines. And even though when I use these lines, it didn't, it didn't get the response out of the females like he gets. Hey, I'm going to leave some grain out there for you. And she bows down on the ground. Look at verse 9. He goes on. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? <laughs> He's like, hey, fellas, you know that new girl down there gleaning in the field? Don't touch her. I mean it. I own a lot of fields. They'll never find your body. I'll bury you six feet deep. I mean, I'll kill you. I will kill you. That's what he's saying. I mean, Boaz like, don't you dare touch her. No, don't you ever think about it. When you go down there, don't you dare touch her. And then he says to her, hey, babe, when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn you. What? As a Moabite woman, if she was even tolerated in Israel at all, she would have to serve the men. She was a servant. But Boaz says, you know what? You don't have to be our servant. I'm actually going to get my men to serve you. You, you go get water from any man you want to get water from. You get, you get it at any time you want. We'll serve you. Now look at verse 14. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here. Eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. This is like an Old Testament version of going out for half-price half apps at Applebee's. Nothing serious, just kind of a casual date, coffee with a friend. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. Verse 15. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young man, Woo! Let her glean among the sheaves and don't stop or criticize her. And also, hey, by the way, while we're at it, pull out some of those bundles for her and leave it for her to glean. Throw some extra on the ground for that girl of mine. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Now notice this. Then she beat out what she had gleaned and she went. It was an ephah of barley, verse 18, and she took it and went into the city. Side point here, scholars say an ephah would have been a thick pile of wheat Really, really heavy. Ruth just hoists it up on her shoulder and carries it all the way back to the city. In other words, Ruth is jacked. Okay, Ruth started CrossFit. Okay. Ruth is jacked. She's carved. Look at verse 18. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned and <laughs> watch your mother-in-law stumble over a word. She she's so excited, excited and said to her, where, 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 where did you glean today? And where, where have you worked? Naomi's so excited. She's stumbling over what she where did you how did, who, what who, blessed be the man who took notice of you. And she told her mother-in-law with whom she worked. Here again, here's the drama. You need to hear the text, feel the text. Ruth does not know Boaz is a family relative. Naomi does. So now when you're a faithful reader of scripture, you're feeling the tension. You're feeling the excitement. This is about to be the big reveal. And so she's saying, hey, I talked to this man. I, I gleaned in the field. And the man's name with whom we work today is... And if you read the Hebrew, Boaz is in the middle of the sentence, not in Hebrew. It's the last word of the sentence. So it's like all this audience anticipation is building because you, the reader, you know this guy's a relative. You know this is a good romantic match. So you're watching Naomi's eyes. And Ruth builds up to the last word in the sentence and said, His name is Boaz. <laughs> and now you cue in the moment the soaring classical music and the flock of doves take off in the background. Y'all ever seen that video where they're at that they're at that that grave ceremony of the person who passed away in the military and they're gonna release three doves, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
They say, now we release them. And Holy Spirit comes out last and tries to cross the road in a tractor trailer, kills Holy Spirit. I mean, just, just bird feathers go everywhere. It's one of the greatest, greatest YouTube videos. Don't, don't watch it right now. Watch it after church. But, but notice, this is what's happening here. This is, this is like fireworks going off. Look at verse uh, 20. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Do you get that? Marah, bitter, just got sweet again. Marah, bitter, just became Naomi again. And Naomi, Naomi, Naomi said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Everybody say redeemer. I got to explain to you and define to you what a redeemer is. A redeemer in that day. What is a redeemer? Okay. In those days, if you were in debt, so like Ruth and, and her mother-in-law, Naomi, are in debt, you had the chance, like you do in Monopoly today, to title over, deed over your property, and you had the rightful experience and right when you got the money to be able to pay back the debt, and then you got your land back. Okay. You had that ability. But here was the deal. You had to buy it back at any time, but you just had to have the money. If you did not have the money then you could hire or get what we call a kinsman redeemer. Kinsman just a fancy word to say family. Here's what a kinsman redeemer was. A kinsman redeemer would be related to you, and he would come in and he would pay off the debt so that you get that land back. Now, a kinsman redeemer had to have three things. Somebody say three things. Number one, it was called a kinsman redeemer because you had to have the right. What do you mean the right? You had to be the closest willing relative to do this. If there was another closer relative than you, they had dibs first. Number two, you had to have the resources. So as a kinsman redeemer, you had to have the resources to go buy back that land, to pay off that debt. Number three, you had to have the resolve. That means you had to have the want to do. You wanted to do it. You wanted to do it. Well, Boaz, look at this. He's a relative and he's wealthy, so he's got the right He's got the resources, but does he have the resolve? Let's see. Naomi says to Ruth, chapter 3, verse 3. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he is finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Verse 7. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and she came in softly and uncovered his feet, and she lay down at the foot of his bed. And at midnight, the man was startled. He turned over and he said, Whoa, behold, a woman lay at his feet. Now all I can say to this is, What? Like, listen, girls, the Bible has a lot of great examples for you to follow, okay? But I would suggest you not imitate what Ruth did here. Let me just go ahead and say to the guys in the room, if you sneak into her apartment and you lay at the foot of her bed, you will go to prison, okay? <laughs> you will go to jail, okay? So you will go to jail. So I, 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 there's a lot of examples to follow in Scripture. This is one you might want to put on the back burner, all right? But what that means for Israel, catch this. That was interpreted by Boaz as she was making an official request to be married to him. So you know what he does? Yeah, he nays, he obliges. He gives in. If you force my hand, right? And he accepts her and he marries her and he reclaims the family inheritance. But there's one small complication. Duh, 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 duh. They discover there's a relative that's closer than him and he's got first dibs. So now... Here is Boaz, his heart's already going out for this young lad, this young lady. And so he goes in chapter 4, he finds out who the guy is, and he goes to the city gate, verse 1. And the Bible says, And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came. He's never given a name, by the way, which is amazing that he is, his lack of generosity is going to make him be forgotten on the pages of history. He doesn't even get his name in the Bible. But when Boaz sees him, he explains the situation to this kinsman redeemer. And he said, and the guy said, Hey, man, they ain't making no more land in Israel. I'll do it. I'll redeem it. I'll get back the land. I'll get this woman. Hey, get some land. Sounds like a great deal. But then Boaz deftly says, verse 5, well, here's the deal, brother. If you take the land, you also got to take this Moabite woman and her mother-in-law, and she's kind of ornery. I mean, she named herself Bitter, okay? She named herself Marah. It's kind of like saying, hey, do you want to buy this house? It's a great deal, but there's a cranky old woman who lives on the second floor, and she goes with the house. I and mean, that's what it's like saying. Plus, this guy, she, he, he thinks, oh, she's a Moabite? What if she's got some crazy Moabite cousin, and they come back, and, and they start moving here, and he's like, oh, nope, prayed about it, fasted, got a check in the spirit. Mm, I'm out. I'm not with it. Okay? I'm not, I'm not buying her back. So Boaz marries her, 
They all live happily ever after, but that's not even the climax of the story. Now, I'm going to preach myself happy just for a moment. The most important part of the entire book is the last four verses of the last chapter. This is the climax. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And we went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Verse 16, then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name. Saying a son has been born to Naomi. Really a grandson. They named him Obed. We get this great sweet picture of Naomi holding Obed and saying God is alive. He is letting me hold my grandson. God has redeemed me. God has redeemed my family. He's given back our inheritance. He turned my bitterness back into sweetness. But that's not even the good part church. Look at verse 17 again. He Obed was the father of Jesse who was the father of David. In other words Obed grew up. He had a son named Jesse. Jesse has a whole bunch of sons and one day God speaks to the prophet Samuel and he says, Samuel, I'm about to begin a brand new era in the whole history of redemption. I'm about to bring a brand new area to the nation of Israel. What I'm about to do in the nation of Israel is going to affect people in Atlanta in 2019. What I'm about to do in this new era is going to be so powerful that there's going to be a kingdom that will last forever. And Samuel's like, good God, what are you going to do? He says, what do you want me to do first? He said, go find me a king. Samuel says, where do I find you a king? He said, go to the house of Jesus. Jesse, the son of Obed, the grandson of Naomi, the mother-in-law of Ruth, the Moabite. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. Now, men, when a guy shows up at your house and says your son will be king, you don't care which son it'll be. So Jesse parades out his seven sons and he says, nope. Samuel 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 says, nope. He says, hey, you got any more kids? He said, oh, I got one more little runt kid, but he certainly ain't a king. He's a, a runt kid out there on the backside of the desert. We can't bring him him in he'll get sheep dung all over the carpet he's out there with the sheep don't bring him in right now and he says I will not sit down until you bring him in and right there church onto the pages of history walks David the king and so the Israelites waited years go by the Nathan the prophet comes to David comes to King David and says 2 Samuel 7 and 16 your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me your throne shall be established forever so the Israelites waited and that they knew if there was going to be a Messiah that would come, it would be from David. And so David has a son who has a son who has a son. And about 25 pregnancies later, or the way we say this in Scripture, 25 begots later, we have Jesus. Jesus, who is the son of David, the son of Ruth, who was born in Bethlehem, the city of Naomi. Right there. Jesus had the right... Jesus had the what? Resources? Jesus had the resolve to buy us back, to be our kinsman. He has the right. Why? Because he was born of a virgin. He was just like us. He's our relative. He has the resources. Why? He was without sin. He has power over death. And he has the resolve. He said, I'll undergo the curse of death to buy you back to myself. In Ruth, y'all, we see the whole gospel displayed before our eyes. I mean, just think about how beautifully this gives us a picture of Christ. People say, why do you believe in Scripture? Why do you believe the Bible is the Word of God? Because this was written 1,300 years before Jesus ever steps foot on the planet. And every detail is so clear, even down to the very city where he'll be born. This Bible we hold, 66 books, over 40 authors, 1,500 years, and one product of supernatural engineering. God has brought to us as a gift that we believe. So let me give you a couple examples or reflections of what I see in the book of Ruth. Number one, in the gospel, God is about the business of redemption. We see in the book of Ruth, God is about the business of redemption. The word redemption is used 23 times in Ruth's four short chapters. The unloved are loved again. The poor are restored. The inheritance that has been lost because of sin is reclaimed by the generosity of another Jesus Christ, who's related to us, or related to us, bitterness in the gospel becomes sweet. Marah becomes Naomi. The book of Ruth, I thought about this this week. Watch this. It starts with death, Naomi losing her husband and sons, and it ends with a genealogy recounting a list of birth. Isn't that amazing? Ruth ends in a genealogy because the Bible ends in a resurrection. Have you ever thought about this? For the world, life starts at birth and ends in death. But for Christians like the book of Ruth, we are actually born into death, but God rewrites our stories for life. And so at the end of this book, you've got a genealogy of life because God brings life 
out of our brokenness. God brings life out of our, out of our vulnerability. God brings life out of our areas where we have been casted away. Naomi goes from barrenness to blessedness. She starts the book as a forsaken, sonless, husbandless beggar. She ends as a grandmother of the Son of God. This is the theme of Ruth, and this is the theme of the Bible, and this is the heart of the gospel, and this is God's message to you and I this morning. The gospel is not that God rewards the successful. The gospel is not that God grants heaven to the righteous and the victorious. No, the gospel is everyone who come, everyone who's thirsty, come to the waters. He who has no money, come. He who has no, no, no food, I want you to buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. But God, I don't have money to buy my food. And God says, I'll buy the food for you. Just take what you want. I want you to eat. I want you to be full. The gospel, we were created, church, to be children of God who forever consistently stay in his presence to have a blessed eternity in heaven with God that was joy upon joy and blessing upon blessing. And we, in our ignorance, sold it all away in sin. We went into the famine and the wasteland. We went into Moab. And yet Jesus, our kinsman, redeemer, he loved us unlovely and pagan as we were and redeemed our inheritance back for us. Hear me, I had a student tell me this week, yeah, God loves me, but he loves some future version of myself. No, God sees us like Boaz saw Ruth. He loved us just as we were. I was oily and slimy, and I had a per se dirty torn dress when Jesus found me in a field too. I was oily and slimy and without hope in this world, and yet God saw me like Boaz saw Ruth. It wasn't that God is in love with some future version of yourself no that he can see in the future he loves you now even in your sin and defilement God's love remains I've always loved the old hymn just as I am you ever sing that it has about 714 verses I know six I was telling them in the earlier gathering those old hymns written in the 1800s and the 19th century they got 714 lines here's what we got in 2010 Yes, yes, Lord, amen. Yes, 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 Lord, amen. Yes, yes, yes. I say, yes, yes, Lord, amen. Right? They got 714 verses. We got yes, yes, Lord. My professor called it off the wall songs. That's what he called it in school all the time because you're reading off the wall. But nonetheless, let's keep moving. Um, different sermon for a different day. So I love that old hymn, Just As I Am. You say, what is it? That song, the story behind it really moves me. The song was written, Just As I Am, by a girl, a woman named Charlotte Elliott. She wrote it in 1834. Her brother was a pastor. He was trying to raise money to launch a new school for girls who couldn't afford to go to school. He wanted girls to be able to go to school. So everybody in the church has a big bazaar, and they all get together, and they start doing all kinds of things to raise money. So everyone was busy cooking and sewing and building things and erecting things, and except Charlotte because her health was so bad that she was bedridden. She couldn't get up off of her bed. She was so depressed. She recounts in her biography about this the most depressing time of her life. She had no strength in her body to help with raising funds for the school. Well, as she watched everybody else use their bodies for God, she wondered if she had anything left to offer him at all. So she went to bed that night, and she was so disturbed, she stayed up all night long, feeling pointless, feeling like worthless. And she's laying in the bed. She stayed up all night long. She said, when the sun rose the next morning, she said, I remembered all of a sudden when the sun came up, I remember my salvation. And she said, God didn't accept me because I had something to offer. He took me in my sin just as I was. And if God took me in my sin that way just as I was, then he would use me that way too. Even bedridden and poor of poverty and poor health and all. And so the next day she got up in bed and she wrote the text to Just As I Am. And Just As I Am is a song that's arguably been used to bring more people to Christ than any other song in all of history. Why? Because it was the hymn they played at every Billy Graham invitation for a crusade for 50 plus years. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou biddest me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, poor wretched blind, sight riches, healing of the mind, yea, all I need in thee I find. O Lamb of God, I come, just as I come, thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve, because thy promise I believe, O Lamb of God, I come. You hear me, church, gospel and the gospel we believe is not a reward for the righteous, it is salvation for the sick. It is salvation for our weary souls. 
For you this morning, you can be redeemed. Sin has brought famine into your life. You're walking through the land of Moab. You're in a wasteland. you got destroyed relationships. you got a marriage that's messed up. The sin in your life has even messed up your own career. I'm telling you, God's not telling you this morning to fix it and he'll reward you. He's telling you to come to him in all of your mess and he will redeem you. And you can be used. Some of you right now, most of all your life, you've been used to bring harm to other people. You're so ashamed. You live in so much regret because of the words you've spoken, because of the things you performed against other people. And I'm here to tell you, God can change that he can rewrite your story when you come to him why because in the gospel God is about redemption but number two God uses the most least likely instruments for his redemption he uses the leastly likely of his instruments of redemption does he not Ruth has everything stacked against her a poor childless widow from a hated race how much worse can it get Meanwhile, catch this, watch this. I don't know if we ever pick up on this. At the same time that Ruth is in Israel, meanwhile, Samson, an Israelite hero strong enough to literally knock down the walls of a huge temple, is off messing around in Delilah's lap and swapping his country's safety for some cheap thrills. And we have a little Moabite girl who forsook everything to follow God and save the nation. And it was she, not he, who brought Jesus into the world. Was it Samson that brought Jesus into the world? It was Ruth who brought Jesus into the world. Naomi says of Ruth, Ruth chapter 4, I love this, verse 15. Says to Ruth, say, you are better to me than seven sons. Ruth, you're better than seven sons. What is he saying? Sons in those days would have been considered ultimate. And seven was the number of completion. It's like saying infinity. So you know what God is saying through the lips of Naomi? You know what God's saying to this little orphan girl? You know what God's saying to this Moabite? He's saying to her, Ruth, because of your faithfulness, you're more valuable to me than the infinity of the strongest men in this country. You're more valuable to me than the infinity of the strongest heroes of this country. Listen, DP, when will we learn that God works through availability and not ability? When will we get it down into our heads and allow it to seep into our hearts where we know and understand God does not need our ability God does not need our wisdom. God does not need our talent. He only calls for our complete and total obedience. He wants us to do whatever he asks him to do. Listen, the point is not how much money you give in the His Blueprint campaign. The issue is, are you giving exactly what he told you to give? Have you written the check that he told you to write? It's not the point of how eloquent our words are. It's whether or not we speak when he tells us to speak and to say what he tells us to say. God will do so much more with your obedience than you could ever do with your talents he's just asking for obedience so listen have a conversation some of you need to write the check today not because it's a matter of what you give it's because you've failed to give what he told you to give some of you need to make the phone call today some of you need to have the conversation today you can scarcely underestimate excuse me overestimate what God will accomplish through just simple obedience and of course all this points to the fact that the one who would save us would not come as a mighty conquering warrior riding a horse like Samson. He would come as a meek, obedient servant like Ruth and like a runt kid David. And a lot of people missed him for that reason because he was born in a stable. He was born in a barn just like they overlooked Ruth and David. Y'all listen to me. The gospel puts prejudice on its head. The gospel turns prejudice on itself. Because those who are considered weak, poor, and cast out in lower class by society are those into whom God chooses to put the riches of his grace and the power of his salvation. It's not many that are mighty, Paul said. It's not many that are strong, Paul said. It's not many that are wise that are called, but it's what? We who are weak, why? So that the power of God that's singed in us will be about the excellency of God and not our own strength. Y'all, this is what Pentecost is. You know this? This is what Pentecost is. Joel has a volcanic, gushing-like vision in Joel chapter 2, and he says, in the last days, God will pour out a spirit on all flesh he said your sons and your daughters will prophesy your old men will dream dreams your young men will see visions and even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit listen to me what made Joel's vision unique was not that the spirit of God would come they already told Moses the spirit of God would come Isaiah chapter 1 verse 15 they already saw that the spirit of God was come it's not that the spirit of God was coming what made his vision so unique is that there was coming a time where indiscriminately God would pour out his spirit on all flesh it would break through every preconceived barrier 
socioeconomic status. It would come upon slaves. It would come upon men. It would come upon women. That's what Pentecost is. Pentecost is God's ability to what? Raise up the wor- uh, raise up in the world a school of prophets, a people of prophets that no wineskin can ever, ever limit. Listen, the Spirit of God in Joel 2.28, he burst the wine, the, 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 the skin or the wineskin of conservatism just like you would expect the Holy Spirit to do. He said, in the last days, I'm pouring out my spirit on all, the most unlikely of instruments of redemption. That's what Pentecost is. That's Pentecost Sunday. So number one, we see he's about the business of redemption. Number two, we see that he uses unlikely instruments. Unlikely, unlikely instruments. This week I was at camp. I was preaching at a camp. It was a couple hundred students. and It was just overwhelming because... Many of them, so a lot of salvation took place. Each night I gave a salvation call. There was, was probably 75 plus 80 students that gave their life to Christ. But even on the last night, I, I asked even, I said, those who've continued to walk in obedience or in hardness of heart, Hebrews says, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart. In fact, the only thing that can send you to hell is not your sin. It's your unwillingness to let him redeem you. That's what it means. They said, well, what's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? It's when you're so against God that you're unwilling The only unforgivable sin is when you don't allow God to forgive you. That's what unforgiveness is. And some of these kids are so hard. Some of the difficult, difficult, difficult situations. And I never forget, on Thursday night, I I created a little prayer tunnel, and I let let the whole camp go through this prayer tunnel. Young girl, 18 years of age. And she laid hands on this young girl, and they fell to the carpet, and she just began to prophesy. I watched her. I watched her from the front row. I was watching this young girl prophesy, and I thought, this is... This is Pentecost. I mean, she was just prophesying to her life and to her future. God uses the most unlikely of instruments. There's another young lady I met on Tuesday night. She gave her life to Christ. and Bless her heart. She's clothes that were kind of torn and tattered. and Comes from very, very far south in a very rural area. And she said, Pastor Craig, last night in the message, I gave my heart to Jesus Christ. She said, but my mom is... My mom called me last night from my cabin and said that she wanted to commit suicide. She has nothing else to live for. Because she keeps getting beat by her boyfriend for drug money. and just keeps beating her. And she said, I don't know how I'm going to go back home and parent my parents. I took that little girl by the hands and we knelt. I just said, please, 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 Jesus, please, 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 please. When she goes back home, let her win her mom to Jesus like I won my mom to Jesus. Please, Lord, please, please. And I made a decision this week again. It was a recent decision, but it was a decision nonetheless. Lord, would you let Dwelling Place Church be a place where those that are cast away, those that are vulnerable, the children that are hurting, Lord, entrust to us those souls, Lord, so desperately need healing. They so desperately need. We live in such a sin-soaked, destroyed, destructive, despaired, discontent, dark world. And God wants to use the most unlikely of instruments of redemption to bring about His saving grace. He does. So I see God's about the business of redemption. I see He uses unlikely instruments, number three. Those who experience the gospel become like the gospel. Those who experience the gospel become like the gospel. This whole book gives us a picture of how Israel was supposed to love others in response to God's love to them. That's why I told you to underline your Bible. The central question of the entire book is chapter 2 verse 5. Whose woman is this? Whose woman is this? That's the question you have to ask about people in your life. The refugee, the immigrant, the orphan, who really are they? The refugee, the immigrant, are they politically just a main political problem to be dealt with in our nation? Or are they people made in the image of God that Jesus died to save? And he died to save and redeem and he wants us to love. Listen, I'm not trying to be political today. I'm not trying to be political at all. But I realize that the government has its own questions about refugees. That's what the government's role is to keep us safe. And we pray for them to make wise decisions. But I'm not the government. Do you understand that? And the church of Jesus Christ is not the government. And so when the refugee or the immigrant shows up down the street from us, you know what our job as the church is regardless of whatever the president 
says or regardless of whatever our, our, our nation says, our job is to love them, to show them the love of Jesus Christ, to embrace them, to be hospitable, to open up our hearts to them, to open up our arms to them, to the divorcee, to the girl who's had an abortion. Whose young woman is she? Is she a stat to be paraded in front of society or is she someone who God gave his only son for and he loves her with an everlasting love and she needs to hear that. This week our, our students go to a mission trip in Clarkson, Georgia. They're going to interact with refugees and immigrants from around the world, probably 50 plus nations. Who is the orphan? Who really is the orphan? Is it Whose son really is that? Are they just to be cast aside and they become a statistic of uh, immorality or are they people made in the image of God? Listen to me. Those who have been redeemed by Jesus ought to become redeemers of others. Those who believe the gospel have to become like the gospel. There's a young man this week that was very hard. I'd preached the first night. I could tell he was stone cold. He came the next day. We were playing four square. He came up to me and said, dude, how do you remain so positive? I said, it's not always been that way, and it's not even all that way following Jesus. He said, I don't know how you get so positive. I graduated high school, and his life was out of control. Most of the kids were very unchurched. He came up to me at lunch, and he said, hey, I really enjoyed that speech last night. I said, awesome, then totally unchurched. He said, I'll see you back up on the podium tonight. No, 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 the stand, like I was going to court. I said, I'll see you from the stand, you know. <laughs> well, the next day, he, his heart's hardened, heart's hardened. I go up to him the third night, and I say, buddy, can I pray for you? He said, no, I'm good. I said, awesome. I'll go back over here and pray with somebody else. His leader heard me, and his leader was like, did he just decline your prayer? How dare you? I was like, don't, no. It's fine. Just pray for him. The last night, got done preaching. Preached the other book of Hosea. We got done praying. It's hour plus after I finished. And I was sitting on the front row, and this young man comes up. He sits down next to me, tears flowing down his face. He got glasses on. He's wiping. He says, uh, he said, tonight was what I was longing for. He said, I really locked into what you said. Felt like God spoke to me. I surrendered my life to Jesus. And then he said this, can I still take you up on your offer, Pastor Craig, to pray for me? And once again, I said, God, those who believe the gospel must become like the gospel. Probably the most powerful adoption story I've ever heard. It's a girl that got pregnant out of wedlock. And there's a couple, a Christian couple, that wanted to adopt this child. And five months into the pregnancy, they had already met. And the social worker comes to the couple. They say, we got some really, really bad news. We took an anatomical scan of the child. Five months pregnant, and this child's going to be born with spina bifida. But it's one of the worst cases of spina bifida we've ever seen. If this child survives, it'll only survive for a few short years. It's going to have no quality of life, no chance really at life of walking cognitively. And, and, and we know your heart. We're, we're, not, we're, not, we're not really sure if we're going to tell even the woman to have an abortion or what to do. These are not Christians. This is social worker. We're not sure if we're going to do this or not. But we just wanted to give you the opportunity to just politely back out of this if you want. We knew you weren't expecting this. This is not what you signed up for when you said you wanted to adopt. And the couple, with all due respect, said they left that night. And they had just in their minds assumed they would politely back out of the situation. But the couple, this couple's troubled, so they go to bed. They go to sleep and they wake up the next morning and the wife looks over her husband and says, hey, we're going to adopt that baby. So well, what, what, I'm not against it. I'm not against it, but just tell me why. Why do, you, why do you think we should adopt that baby? And she said, last night I had a dream. And she said, I was in this dream. I was observing a stadium full of 100,000 people. So there was thousands of people everywhere. And all of a sudden, as I'm looking around, they start bringing out children one by one to the center of this stadium. Beautiful children. And they would go out like the Lion King, and they would hold up a child, and they'd say, who wants this one? People would come from the stands. They would take the child and embrace it in the bosom and go back and sit down. And This happened over and over and over and over again. Somebody volunteered, and then she said they brought this child that was, that was really, really ugly. It was really, really deformed, really, really diseased, really, really scarred. It looked like it would never have a hope of a good life at all, and the question was asked to the stadium. Who wants this one? Come on, Jesse. Who wants this one? She said the crowd in the stadium grew deathly silent. No one was speaking. There was not a peep. She said all of a sudden when the time built, she said someone stood up from the front row and started walking to the center. And I couldn't tell who it was. 
person took the child and turned around and started walking back. And she said, in the dream, I had this ability to kind of get really close. And when that person who picked up the child turned around, I saw it was Jesus. It was Jesus. So I, in my dream, got really close behind him. And as he walked towards the seat, he was holding the child. I could only see the back of their heads. And as he got to his seat, he turned around. And when he turned around, I got a real quick glimpse of the child's face and it was my face when I was diseased and had the sin poison flowing through my body and they said who wants this one deafening silence but Jesus the kinsman redeemer stood up out of stood up out throne of heaven came to earth and he picked up this deformed, diseased child. He says, I want him. She looked at her husband and said, we got to adopt this child with sperm and infant and all. This child lives three days and three years and 30 years. We're going to show this child the love and the compassion of a God who's adopted to us. When you have been redeemed, you will redeem others. Those that are redeemed become redeemers of others. Now, yours might not be adoption. I understand that adoption of false secure is very, very, very complex. Please hear me. But it might be high school students. I don't know what it is that God's called you to be a redeemer of. Is it penitentiary? Is it prison inmates? Is it you starting a jail ministry? Is it you walking across the cubicle in your own workplace to share the love of Jesus? Is it walking to your neighbor this afternoon when you get home that's in your cul-de-sac? I don't know who it is, but I'm here to tell you that we becoming redeemers of others is not going to fit into our 9 to 5 schedule. It's going to be tough. Anything worthwhile in the kingdom is hard. It requires sacrifice. But just like one pastor friend of mine said, as a person engaged in adoption, he said taking a child with fetal alcohol syndrome is probably not near as glamorous as people make it look on TV. It's tough. All of that TV passes by. It's really, really tough. It's very, very difficult. It may inconvenience your life, but it's not really anything compared to what it was like for Jesus to take us who had the corruption and the sin and the poison of fetal alcohol syndrome flowing through our veins and body and bring us into a family dearly loved by our Father. We sing about Jesus' love. I stand amazed. And I wonder at how you could love me. Wonder. W-O-N-D-E-R. I wonder. He took my sin and my sorrow and he made them his very own. How marvelous. How wonderful. W-O-R-N-D-E-R. How wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Did you get that? Jesus' love for us was so marvelous it made us wonder. My question for us today is our love for others so marvelous that it makes them wonder. Wonder. Could there be a God that loves me? Could there be a God that sees me today? Russ Moore, president of the SBC for a time, he wrote a book called Adopted for Life. I just read it. He said, think of how revolutionary it is for a Christian to adopt a young boy with a cleft palate from a region of India where people see him as defective. Think of how odd it must seem to American seculars to see Christians adopting a baby whose body trembles with an addiction to the cocaine her mother sent through her bloodstream before birth. Think of the kind of credibility such action leads and lends to the proclamation of our gospel. What if we as Christians were known, he said, once again, as the people who take in orphans and make of them beloved sons and daughters. Those who've been redeemed, redeem others. I want to share this last verse that the Lord has so stirred in my spirit for you this week. Romans 8, 28 and 29, as the man comes, this is what the apostle Paul said. He said, we know, everybody say, we know. That for those who love God, all things, can you say all things, work together for good. Now that means we need to redefine good. But he said all things work, if we love God, all things work to good. What? For those who are called according to his purpose. For God, those he foreknew, he had foreknowledge, he predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ might be the firstborn among many brethren. Listen to me. Look at verse 29. God's end goal in your life 
in my life is to be conformed to the image of his son and for Jesus to have a lot of brothers and for Jesus to have a lot of sisters. That's his goal. And every season of life, he's trying to get you to look more like his son Jesus. And he wants Jesus to be your big brother. He wants Jesus to be the brother of the same family of he who is holy. We are also holy, scripture said. That's where things are headed. That's where all of history is headed. That's the goal. That's the good. Listen to me. God's good plan for your life is to make you look like Jesus. That's how he defines good. He defines good as you becoming like the Savior. In fact, can I say it this way? There's nothing better God could do to you than to make you look more like Jesus. Nothing better God could do to you than to make you look more like His Son. So we got to redefine the word good. All things work together for good. What God says is a total win for Craig Mosgrove. A total win for my life is my life would be conformed to the image of his dear son. It's not that I'll be rich. It's not that I'll be popular. It's not that I'll be happy. It's not that I'll be successful. But I become more like Jesus. And so God, watch this church, is coordinating the whole universe to make people look like his son. He's coordinating sovereignly circumstances to make you look like his son. And that's what God prizes for you. And that's what has to be most valued for ourselves. So whatever things you're going through today, I don't know all you're going through today. I don't know all the hosts of circumstances, but I'm telling you that God's goal in everything you're going through is to make you and to make me look more like Jesus. But let's be honest. Life is not easy. It's not easy. To be quite frank with you, this past year has been the most painful year of my life. But according to verse 29, God is saying to me that in this past year, God could not have been more good to me. If good is looking more like Jesus. So if you're a believer in this room, no matter what's happened in the last 12 months, God could not have been more good to you. That he's using every circumstance to conform in you the image of Jesus. Had a pastor read of this story I was telling you in this adoption book. This pastor was in England and he had a he had a boy named Theo. And they found out in the middle of the pregnancy Theo would be born with spina bifida too. He said he wouldn't have much of a quality of life. He said when he first got out of the womb, he's going to have to have immediate surgery, and then he would recover, and then he had immediate surgery again, and he's going to have to have surgery again. They said, we understand that. The child's born, they spine a bifida, they do surgery, goes remarkably well. Six months passed, the baby's now six months old. It's time for another surgery. He said, I got, as this pastor, as this dad, he said, I had an awful situation on my hand. He said, the doctor told me I couldn't feed him for 24 hours before the surgery. No liquid on his belly for 24 hours. He said, an awful situation on my hand. He said, I was sitting there holding my baby who was screaming bloody murder, screaming the house down for milk, screaming the house down for formula. And he said, I looked at my little baby boy and I said, I promise you, I promise you there's a really good reason for this. I promise you there's a good reason I'm not giving you food. We're going to do surgery to help you tomorrow. And he said, as soon as I said it, he said it was like the light bulb went off in my head. And he said, isn't that what God is like for his children when he deals with us? When we go through this age groaning and screaming the house down at the circumstances of our life, Jesus looks at us from heaven and says, I promise you, I promise you on my name, there is a reason you are going through this. That means nothing you go through is meaningless. That means that this that this, that this is happening right now. This experience is not purposeless. It's not a waste of time. It's a purpose. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. 